All right, let me welcome you back. We're going to get started. Our text for today is Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Genesis 8. If you're new to church or or maybe uh, first time to church in a long time, um, our weekly worship services are typically structured where we pray together, uh, we sing together, and then we listen to a message uh, from the Bible together. I preach what's called expository, which is uh, we pick a section of Scripture and we just try to go verse by verse. We feel like that's the best way uh, for us to work through the Bible. And so this past summer, we've been working through Genesis chapters 1 through 11. We've called the series Foundations. And today we are in Genesis chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 22. And I'm going to ask Matt to come on up and read that for us. Good morning. My name is Matt Freed. My wife, Chelsea Freed, is over there. We've been attending Ridgeline Community Church since 2018, and we've been very blessed to have a wonderful body of believers to worship with and do life with. Like Gibbs said, our text today is Genesis 8, 1 through 22, and I'll read from it now. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth the dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves in the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an ark to the Lord, uh, an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. 
for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for this body of believers. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to guide Gibson's words as he delivers the uh, preaching for today. And we glorify your name, Lord. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Well, with the opening of chapter 8, we leave the pre-flood world behind. Genesis 8 for us marks a new beginning. Everything is starting fresh and everything is new. It is in every way a recreation. And just to catch you up, this has been about 1,600 years since the creation uh, began. And so at 1,600 years, uh, God resets everything. And uh, we don't have all the questions answered about the pre-flood world, do we? I mean, there's a whole lot that we wish we knew more about, uh, but we just don't have enough information about all the questions that we have. But let me help you see a couple of things that we do have in Genesis chapters 1 through 7. We, we call the series Foundations because Genesis chapters 1 through 7, it really gives us a framework and a functioning worldview that helps us make sense of the world today. Genesis 1 through 7 gives us this complete functioning worldview. For example, we have the answer as to how the universe came into being. We have time in the beginning. We have matter, the heavens and the earth. And it's real material. This isn't a, a simulation of some kind. We have an original force. God speaks and everything comes into existence. Uh, we see in Genesis 1-7 through 7, all the energy potential that's built into creation. I mentioned a few weeks ago that with the flood uh, came these large drainage points all over the earth with all the organic material uh, that uh, is where we get today fossil fuels. Um, all the energy potential was built into our creation in, in other ways with solar power, wind power, and other ways. Genesis 1 through 7 uh, introduces us to other created spiritual beings, angels, the sons of God, uh, those who have fallen, um, the adversary. We see many of those who serve the Creator and many of those who are in conflict with the Creator. Uh, we are given the answer to humanity's purpose and uh, the design for our original created purpose to fill the earth, to subdue it, to accomplish this while bearing the image of God on the planet and to do so for the glory of God in a right relationship with God. We also have the answer to the problem of evil, don't we? We have the answer to why terrible things happen in our world and why we see evil on the planet today. We know that that's due to the fall of man in Genesis 3. And we also see divine remedy, vindication, justice, and a real concept of righteousness, what it means to be right and right with God. We see numerous examples that the righteous will live by faith, first and foremost, not by some sort of moral perfection, but by walking with God in faith and fear. 
And most importantly, we have these hints of divine redemption. That is, God actively working to redeem mankind. We see that in the promised seed in Genesis 3 called the Proto-Evangelion, that there will come a son born of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And though the serpent will strike his heel, he will crush its head, therefore reversing the curse of sin and evil in the world. We see all of that. So even when we leave Genesis 1 through 7 behind, I want you to know that we have a lot of answers here. And and honestly, a lot of answers that the world seeks. A lot of philosophical questions. A lot of philosophies are built around these uh, basic building blocks that we see in Genesis 1 through 7 uh, that, are, that is humanity trying to figure out who we are, how we got here, what we're doing here, and what our purpose is. We have all those answers in Genesis chapter 1 through 7. We may not have all the answers that we want. Uh, certainly there were a lot of questions a few weeks ago after the sermon about the sons of God coming into the daughters of men and producing this race of Nephilim giants and things like, we don't have all those answers, alright? Uh, so don't ask, but, um, but we do have a lot of answers as to the foundations of life and the, the mysteries of our universe. And so we pick up the story today, leaving that world behind, leaving the pre-flood world and its corruption behind. And in Genesis 8, we have, as it were, a new beginning, a fresh start, a new creation. There was the decreation of all things in last week's text, and today is the recreation of those things. As we listen to today's message, have you ever wanted a fresh start in life? Have you ever come to a point when maybe you're tired of the past? Maybe you're sick of your circumstances. Maybe you are fed up with the choices that you continually have made in the past that have brought you hopelessness or destruction, or maybe you've had bad relationships or um, bad experiences. I think it's a natural thing for us to want something fresh, to want a new beginning, to wipe the slate clean, uh, to erase the board and start fresh uh, with a clean slate. Today's passage gives hope for that. You might not have thought to turn to Genesis 8 for a fresh start. Most often we turn to passages like Romans 8 or others where there is uh, the thought of a new life, Galatians 5, other places like that. But I want you to see this morning that after God decreates in Genesis 6 and 7, that He begins a work of recreation, of a restart, and of renewal in Genesis 8. We see God giving new beginnings, both, both for the entire world, but also I want you to see that He gives new beginnings for individuals like us. Uh, I put together some slides last week, and uh, it kind of helped explain the structure of the flood narrative. And so I'm going to review that first flood so that you kind of understand where we're going in this passage. And so uh, last week we were introduced to this um, chiastic structure. And this chiastic structure, as it was revealed to Moses, shows us that God revealed uh, this flood narrative in a particular way. Uh, if you're familiar, if you're not familiar with a chiastic structure or a chiasmus, I think it's called, it is where the points um, 
uh, A and A1 correspond to one another in some way. B and B1, C and C1, D and D1, E and E1. And you can see it in the language in the verses that are marked here. God resolves to destroy the corrupt race in A. And then in A1, at the end of the passage, the Lord resolves not to destroy humankind. Uh, in B, Noah builds an ark according to God's instructions. And in B1, we find Noah building an altar. In C, the Lord commands the remnant Noah and his family to enter the ark. And then in C1, God commands that same remnant to leave the ark. You can see the structure. The flood begins. The, uh, the earth dries. The flood prevails for 150 days. And the flood recedes for 150 days. And, and as we look at any chiastic structure, and this isn't, um, uh, this isn't just in this passage. I think there are 10 or 12 different chiastic structures in the book of Genesis. And it's a way of... <clears throat> Allowing the reader's eyes to focus on a main point. And I think that you can see the point that God is trying to get across to us uh, in this point F, where God remembers Noah. And that's where we're going to start. So let's get into our text for today. Uh, The next slide is that God remembers and He acts favorably. Verse 1 that Matt read for us, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And so in that um, short phrase, but God remembered, uh, we have this hope for something new. And I want you to think think about remembering in this way. Uh, Remembering is not just mental recall. Right? It's not just... Let me just... um, um, share with you an illustration from Chad Bird in his podcast, 40 Days in the Old Testament, about this passage. He, he, he makes this point of distinction that, that recalling something in your mind without any sort of activity or action is not what this verse, it's not what is meant when God says he remembered. Now, and he gives us this example. He says, what if I were to wake up and it's my wife's birthday? Or my anniversary. By the way, husbands, uh, those are dates that you should know. Right? You should know your wife's birthday. You should know your your anniversary. But let's say that we were to wake up. Uh, I were to wake up on my wife's birthday, and that throughout the whole day, immediately when I wake up, I remember it's my wife's birthday today. But instead of saying anything, or instead of making breakfast, or having gifts, or having uh, anything special at all. Is it sufficient enough for me just to remember that it's her birthday? Right? Throughout the day, she might drop hints. What are your plans today? Do you have anything special today? Is there anything going on today? And, and, and as she drops those hints, maybe toward the end of the day, there are no more hints. Matter of fact, there may not even be any more words, uh, but just simply more of a closed spirit until, uh, she says, do you know why today was special? Would it be sufficient for me to say, yeah, it's your birthday? No, because the act of bringing to mind is not the same as bringing to mind with favorable action. And Scripture uses the word remember in this way. Um, when God remembers Noah, He remembers him in a favorable way. He doesn't just think about him and his family on the ark and the animals on the ark. He remembers him in a way that, that leads to action. 
What is the action? Look at the rest of verses 1 through 5. God makes a wind blow over the earth and the water subsides. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven, it says, were closed. Now that that gives language of divine initiative, that God is doing something. He's closing the windows of the heavens. He is closing those um, places where the earth has erupted and the waters of the deep, the fountains of the deep have burst forth. Um, when God remembers, He closes the windows of the heavens and He closes the fountains of the deep and He restrains the wind, I mean the rain from the heavens. Verse 3, and the result is that the waters recede from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had completely abated. And it tells us in verse 5 that the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And then the mountaintops were seen. God remembered Noah and he did something. You see, in all those places, the waters receding and abating and subsiding and land is coming forward. How did God remember and act favorably? He turned off the mechanism by which He had brought to judge the world. He shut off the waters of destruction and He closed off the means of judgment and annihilation. It is, in a real sense, and in an active way, God relenting, God pulling back. Do you remember the story in Chronicles when David has sinned against the Lord by taking a census. And and in the process of this, God had told him not to do this, and he does this, and it's a way of him sort of measuring himself and his troops. And and as a result of this, um, God promises that there will be punishment. And and there's like an option, three days of this or three weeks of that. And and finally, at some point, um, David repents of what he's done and confesses his sin and God relents from the judgment that he had brought about. This is what God is doing. He is relenting from his act of judgment. And the point is that the act of remembrance with God comes with meaningful, favorable action. Noah and his family have just gone through a painful one-year trial where they effectively lost everything, didn't they? They lost uh, maybe their home or their homestead, or they lost um, uh, relationships, they lost society, they lost cities, they lost trade. There was a great loss of life. And Noah and his family have escaped with their lives only and everything that they need to start over. But they've essentially lost everything from their former way of life. And God remembering them and acting favorably toward them shows the turning point that we're supposed to see in that chiastic structure. And it leads us to ask this question, have you ever gone through a period of trial or tribulation or maybe a difficult time in your life? Uh, Maybe it's a season uh, of just not very good health. Or maybe it's a period of time when relationships uh, turned and things went sour. Or maybe it's a time of uh, financial or career difficulty. Or maybe it's just a time of personal struggle with mental health or in some other way. I think it's natural for people in times like that to think and to ask the question, has God forsaken me? 
Has God forgotten about me? The psalmist writes, Why, O Lord, do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself from me in times of trouble? Can you relate to that? I remember early on in my ministry, I worked at a large church in Oklahoma City, and every Tuesday we received three or four lists, uh, pages of lists of people who were um, in the hospital that that needed a visit or in a nursing home that needed a visit or at home. Maybe they were homebound for some reason. And, and I was maybe 25 or 26. And I, if I'm being honest, it was a hard thing for me to do. It was difficult for me to go into hospitals and places. And um, it just seemed like it was so far away from where I was in my life. But there were a few turning points. And, and one of those turning points came when I visited an elderly woman whom I had developed a really good relationship with at a hospital. And she had just gone in for a routine procedure, uh, a day or so tops. Um, But there were complications and and there were infections. And what was supposed to just be a day or two turned into a week and two weeks and three weeks. And every Tuesday, and when she popped up on my list, I couldn't believe it. And by the fifth or sixth week of her struggling in this hospital bed, uh, I could just see week after week her, her hopes were falling. Uh, she, she said to me, I think God has forgotten about me in here. And it just, it touched me. Uh, and, and, and I went back the next week armed with verses The Lord will never leave you or forsake you. God has not forgotten you. And I reminded her of this passage in Genesis 8, that God remembered Noah. In Genesis 9, that He will remember His covenant. In Genesis 19, that God remembered Abraham and spared Lot. In Genesis 30, verse 22, that God remembered Rachel and listened to her. That in all these places, God remembers His own people. And He doesn't just remember them by bringing them to mind, but He he acts in a favorable way when God remembers. All these passages, uh, Exodus 2, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And so when you find yourself in a period of trials and difficulties and a painful season, just know that as you're crying out to God and as you're seeking Him and as you're enduring and persevering and when it feels like hope is lost, that there is a time that God remembers and acts favorably toward you. In that passage in Exodus 2, 23-25, God heard their groaning And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and it says God knew. I think we can take comfort in that. That God knows what you're going through, and he knows where you are today, and he has not forgotten you, and he promises to redeem you. And by the way, this is good prayer language for you to adopt. God, remember. God, do not forsake me. God, remember your covenant. Remember your congregation. Psalm 25, 6-7, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, but according to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. 
I have a dozen or more verses here that describe God not forgetting. I read last week from Isaiah that in Isaiah 49, uh, the Lord, Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. But God replies, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even though she may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. This language is meant to comfort us in times when you feel like God has forgotten you. And maybe you feel that way today. Maybe, maybe you can't relate to what I'm saying. Maybe you, you, you don't feel that way today. But there may come a day when you are in, <clears throat> as John Bunyan describes in Pilgrim's Progress, the, the slaw of despair. When you just don't see much hope and much hope on the horizon. I think the receding waters continually brought to Noah and his family hope. They saw with their eyes God remembering them and acting favorably toward them. And it's not just that God remembered them, but He did something. And and He does more than just remember them and the waters receding. On the next slide, we see in verses 6 through 19 that God is recreating and actually renewing the earth. And I want you to see in these verses a parallel between Genesis 1 and Genesis 8. There are these intentional textual clues that show us that God is not just renewing the earth, but He's actually recreating it. And and I have in front of me seven different ways that Genesis 8 parallels Genesis 1 in creation, and I'll just quickly go through those. In in the passage that Matt read today in Genesis 8.1, it said God caused a wind to blow over the waters and they began to recede. That word wind is the same Hebrew word translated ruach, which is the same word for spirit. And you remember in, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, it says the earth was without form and it was void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so we see this parallel from Genesis 8 to Genesis 1 that the Spirit is over the waters in chapter 1 and now the Spirit of the water, the Spirit is blowing over the deep waters again. And you see another hint about it when <clears throat> Noah sends out the dove. And this dove is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. I think you remember that from Jesus' baptism, that when Jesus goes into the water to be baptized by John the Baptist, um, it says that they heard a voice from heaven, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And as Jesus is going into the water and He comes out, the, the Spirit descends as a dove, in bodily form on Jesus. And so you have there present in Jesus' baptism, excuse me, and in creation, the Father uh, speaking Jesus the Word and the Spirit hovering over the waters. You see that same imagery here in the Spirit over the waters, the wind blowing over the waters. A second parallel is you see these seven-day cycles, the number seven. Noah sends out the dove and he waits another seven days in verses 10 through 12. And in Genesis 1, we see that God creates the earth in, uh, in, in one day 
uh, I mean, in seven, six days, and he rests on the seventh day. And those seven-day references help us to remember the days of creation. A third parallel is that we see dry ground appearing. On the third day of creation, we see the waters being separated and dry ground appearing. You don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called sea, seas, and God saw that it was good. And we see that same language repeated in Genesis 8, dry land and land drying and the waters receding. A fourth similarity is we have vegetation growing. Noah sends out this um, dove and it, it plucks um, an olive leaf. And in the same way, that showed Noah that, that there was vegetation sprouting. We also see on the third day of creation, vegetation sprouting on the earth. We see a fifth parallel that God speaks and something instantly takes place. There is obedience. In Genesis 1, every day that God spoke, something would happen, an appearance of something. And in the same way, God commands Noah to leave the ark in verses 15 through 16. We see the voice of God and then people and uh, there is a response to God's voice. A sixth parallel is that animal life resumes, just like it happened on days five and six in the original creation. We have this language that God creates swarms and creatures that creep along the earth. We find that same language right here in Genesis 8. Uh, in verse 17, bring out with you every living thing that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Isn't that Terrible language, by the way. Does that make you think of spiders and mice and, you know, just creeping things? Um, one day uh, I came into the office and there was a bat uh, blocking the doorway, um, creeping along the ground. And it just gave me the same feeling that I know many of you have uh, when you see a mouse or when you see a spider or something like that. All these creeping things. This is the same language from Genesis 1. Um, but it's not present when God tells Noah to build the ark. He just says, bring the animals into the ark. But here in the recreation mandate, he mimics the same language. Bring out the creeping things, the swarms and the birds and the animals, that they may swarm on the earth. And then the seventh parallel to creation is that God repeats the creation mandate originally given to Adam and Eve. He tells them in verse 17, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So the second point here from this passage is that God doesn't just remember Noah, but he recreates. He renews and he gives him a new creation for him to dwell in and his family. You might think, well, that's great. But what does that have to do with us today? How can we apply that information? I think a point of application for us is really clear here is that if God is able to renew and make an entirely new creation, what do you think He can do in your life? Do you think that God can renew you and bring new life if you've come to that place that I mentioned earlier where maybe you've endured a, a season of difficulty. Maybe you're a Christ follower and you've endured a long season of trials and hardships and pain and and you're looking for that renewal. But maybe more importantly, maybe you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and, and your life is 
empty, without purpose, filled with destruction, and there's a lack of peace in your life, and you wonder, what is this all about? Listen, if God is able to make a new creation, He can certainly renew you. If He can renew the earth after destroying it, He can certainly renew your life after sin has taken its disastrous effects on your life. Just listen to this verse. Maybe write it down and look it up later. But in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Listen, God can make new that which has been destroyed by the effects of sin. And I don't know if that's you today, but if you're longing for something new, if you need something hopeful on the horizon, trials don't last forever, and God has promised renewal and new life in Christ Jesus. The last thing I want you to see about our passage today is that God doesn't only remember Noah and his family, and God doesn't um, only renew and bring about a new creation for them, but there's an important response for Noah and his family, and that is that God receives their worship. Look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on that altar. This is worship as God described. We know that in Genesis 4, after the fall of man in Genesis 3, that God took skins, that is that he, he sacrificed uh, an innocent animal, and he took the skins from that animal and he used it to cover over the shame and the nakedness that Adam and Eve experienced in the fall. And so we have in many ways the example of sacrifice, of something innocent taking the place of something um, someone else for a worship offering. You remember, this is why Cain killed Abel, is because Abel offered a sacrifice to God in this way, and that God looked on Abel's sacrifice with regard. How will God respond to Noah and his sacrifice of these clean animals? And by the way, it's not like he had a super abundance of clean animals. I mean, he just took seven. And so for Noah and his family to sacrifice some of these cost them something. Verse 21, it says, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. I want you to pause here with this phrase. When the Lord smelled this pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart. And this is something we should tune into. Anytime God's heart is revealed... Uh, we should take notice. This is the second time in Genesis 1 through 8 that uh, God's heart is revealed. You remember in chapter 6 that the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. And so we have a window into, into the heart of God that wickedness and sin and evil grieve Him to His heart. And you'll remember in that 
sermon from Genesis 6 that, that when we describe the heart of God, it's echoed in, in Jesus when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus and knew that he was going to raise him from the dead. Jesus, when he saw all the people weeping and crying and mourning over Lazarus, Jesus wept, giving us insight into the heart of God, that he is not some robotic, cold, angry, judgmental deity that stands far off, but he's willing to enter into their pain and grief. Jesus is no stranger to pain and suffering, but enters into humanity, experiences suffering. Read Philippians 2, 5-7 through in particular, and you'll see that Jesus became obedient to death, became obedient to death on a cross, that he took our punishment and shame, And he experienced this grief so much so that the night before his crucifixion, he cried out, my God, my God, if you can take this cup of suffering away from me. And even on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Jesus enters into our suffering. God is not at a distance. He identifies with you. Hebrews tells us that that we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens and also through every temptation that we also experience. I find great comfort in that God's heart is revealed to us first and that what grieves us grieves Him. God looked at the state of the earth in Genesis 6 and it grieved Him, it hurt Him that men were so evil and violent and wicked. But now we have the second mention of God's heart in Genesis 8 and it is that God is pleased with Noah's worship. God's heart is pleased with worship. And I think that that has direct application for our lives today in that when we, when we seek to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, I think it pleases God. You know, when Jesus uh, told the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews 5, 6, and 7 that, that when you pray, go into your room and pray to your Father in secret. And when He sees what is done in secret, He will reward you. What does that mean? When, he, when you fast, when you give, when you do these things, when you do it as a means of worship, just between you and God. You see, there are a lot of people who come into the congregation and they, they worship with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind and all their strength. In this one hour period of time, they, they, they muster up all they can to worship. But in the other six and a half days of the week, they, there may not be a private worship taking place. And I think God is pleased with our private worship. When we approach Him on a regular basis, on a day-to-day basis, in the secluded place and in the private places of our hearts, and we honor Him, as a creator and Lord of our lives. I think that public worship is the result or the overflow of a week of private worship. Some people come in here just ready. Congregational worship is the icing on the cake after a week of private worship or maybe small group worship or worshiping in groups of two or three. God is pleased with worship and worship has much more to do with the way you live your life than the songs you sing. I think we do uh, worship a great uh, injustice when we say, I didn't like that worship song, or I really can worship when I sing that song, as though worship can be reduced to just a song. Listen, worship is the totality of your life spent in pursuit of 
intimacy and walking with God. It's in obedience to God. Jesus said, they will love me when they obey my commands. Obedience is God's love language. When, when we live a life of obedience and worship to God, He is honored and pleased with that worship. We're told this about Noah. He walked with God. He was a preacher of righteousness. And in every way, his life pleased God up until this point. So now we have some sense of what happened during the time of the flood. There was a decreation and a recreation. And next week, you're going to find out that, uh, that Noah had his flaws as well. Right? This doesn't always end well for Noah and his family. The flood did not completely eradicate sin. It's, it's not done with at the end of the flood. And we'll get to the Tower of Babel and the spreading of humanity around the world. But let's close with this idea. And I want to encourage you with this, that God gives you rest after the trials. God gives rest after the trials. In Genesis 5, Lamech named Noah, and his name Noah it means rest. And so we're reminded of that in Genesis 8, when the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Rest is the language that God used to end the flood. And Lamech's prophecy was right. There was rest after the trial. And so maybe you are in need of rest and relief after a season of trials and difficulties and hardships. God does give us these seasons to shape our character, to prune us, and to make us more and more like Jesus. And James 1 tells us to consider uh, these trials, to to approach them with great joy. Um, That we're to approach these trials understanding that God uses them for good and for glory. But I find comfort in the fact that there is rest afterward. Don't you? The trials don't end forever. That there will be an eternal rest. There will be an eternal end to our labors. But in the meantime, God often gives to us seasons of rest after great trials and difficulties. And then the last point of application to conclude this passage, uh, I summarized that we have this complete worldview given to us in Genesis 1-7, through um, but we also approach Scripture with this uh, completed revelation of all things. We, we don't just know how that world ended. We also have an indication of how our world is going to end. So the encouragement to us is that we won't be lulled to sleep by the ordinary rhythms of life, failing to live with the end in mind. Warren Wearsby says it this way, What was it that caused Noah's generation to reject God's word and to perish? Jesus gives us insight in Luke fourteen sixteen through 24 that when he says that just as in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking, marrying and carrying on with business of life, they were completely occupied with the ordinary things of daily life and they were completely unconcerned with eternity. I think people do that today, don't you? I think people live day to day uh, concerned about the weather, concerned about their job, concerned about their bills, concerned about all these sort of things that we face on a daily basis. And, and I think you should do that, by the way. I don't think you should ignore those things. Paul told the Thessalonians, if a man won't work, then he shouldn't eat. And he encourages us in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 11 through 12, to 
Um, work with your hands to mind your own business so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. To, to daily go to work, that's natural, but not to do so losing your eye for eternity. Not to in, in, invest your life in that which is not going to last for eternity. Wearsby continues, he says, They all believed that life would go on as it always had and that nothing would change. They thought that God wouldn't invade the world or interrupt the normal flow of things, but He did. And people today have that same attitude concerning the future return of Jesus Christ. And so our our final warning is not to be like the people in Noah's generation. Don't live your life for the ordinary daily rhythms of life. Live your life today for the glory of God, understanding that the end is imminent that Jesus Christ will return. He promised He would, and He promises He'll come back. And you can live in light of that eternity. And so I encourage you to do so. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for the passage that we've been able to consider. We pray that You would use this Word for Your glory and that You might encourage us with rest and relief and remembrance and also enable us to live a fruitful, productive kingdom oriented life. And we thank you for the way in which you've brought us together today. And we pray that you would use your word to challenge us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen.